Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, and welcome to our Money Talks Christmas Jamboree, the highlight of the year at Economist Towers. I'm Philip Coggan, your host, and we'll be celebrating the business, finance, and economics highlights, as well as the lowlights of 2018. For this lavish and boisterous gathering, we're truly delighted to be joined by Charlotte Howard, The Economist New York Bureau Chief and Energy and Commodities Editor. Hello, Charlotte. Hello, Phil. And Vijay Vaithiswaran, our Business Editor. Welcome, Vijay. Hello there, Phil. And last, but by no means least, a special guest, Cardiff Garcia, the co-host of NPR's The Indicator from Planet Money. Thank you for joining us, Cardiff. Hey, Phil. Um, and it's last and possibly least, depending on depending on how we all do in this contest. So, yeah, thanks. Tell us just a little bit about The Indicator before we move on. Sure. Uh, the Indicator is an 8 to 10 minute daily podcast. Uh, sometimes it's newsy and sometimes it's just plain weird. And it's co-hosted by me and Stacey Vanek-Smith. And everybody should make it the second podcast listen of your week right after Money Talks. <laughs> That's very nice of you to say. So let's start with a look at the stories of the year. Anyone could chip in with the answer? Question one. Who was happy as Larry about his $237 million pay package? You have three Americans perplexed. We're all looking around, yeah. There's a clue in the name there. Somebody called Larry who got a $237 Somebody called Larry got a $237 million pay package this year. uh, And we're all That's right. One of the biggest companies in the States, which has just dropped out of the Dow Jones Industrial Average this year. Presumably uh, Larry Culp at GE. Larry Culp at GE. Well done, Vijay. That is correct. He replaced Jeff Immelt's replacement after only a year, and he's got this $237 million coming over the next five or six years. So... um, I don't know if that's the biggest example of an executive pay package we can think of this year, but maybe there's some others you would suggest that are equally large. Well, I think even bigger is the pay package Elon Musk won for himself, that if his company becomes a trillion-dollar valuation company, he'll pocket hundreds of billions of dollars. It's a obscene but at the same time quite reasonable pay package he was able to get before plunging the company into utter chaos and almost getting thrown in jail by the Department of Justice and other investigators. Yeah, I think the one I'm trying to think of is who, what's a good example from this year of somebody who got a huge pay package to leave? You know, I think I might have Megyn Kelly on my mind right now, but in terms of CEOs, there are always some good examples of these. I gotta tell you, I didn't realize that Larry Culp had gotten a pay package that big. I mean, given what's happening with GE. Especially uh, (laughs) if it's based on future valuation of GE stock, it might not be worth so much. Uh, Depending on what happens, its rating on its debt is close to junk already. I'm also just wondering if that was a necessary incentive, given that his predecessor only lasted like 14 months in the job, right? I mean, 
it's it's not a super attractive position to take right now, which is an astonishing thing to say about GE, like one of the great American companies. But anyways. I'd just like to make clear to GE that I do the deal for $236 million. But, um, <laughs> Charlotte, uh, among the CEOs that you deal with, are there any that stand out as being particularly overpaid or underpaid, do you think? Just another pair of executives I would highlight, not in terms of their pay, but this was really quite a year for Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg, and we can get more into that. But between uh, the revelations earlier in the year around Cambridge Analytica and then the continuing fallout from that that you've seen just in the past month or so with reporting from the New York Times, it's been a really, really rocky year for them, and I'm interested to see what happens with them. Okay, let's move on to question two. This year... Which company declared it was the last straw? Clue in the question. Starbucks. Absolutely right. That's Cardiff. Oh, right? very good. Yeah. Is this the plastic straw thing? Or the move it away, the the move away from thing, plastic yeah. straws? Right, yeah. Okay. They declared that they'd be getting rid of plastic straws in the foreseeable future, not immediately. And it, it's interesting how many companies are moving in the green direction. There's a big oil company as well. I don't know if you followed that story, which... Announced something similar? Shell. That's right. Announced it would set carbon targets for, well, it actually already had set carbon targets for 2050 to lower the emissions, not just from its own operations, but from all of the customers that use its oil. But the thing that was new is that it would set short-term targets so you could track it in the near term over three- and five-year periods. One thing I think was lost, though, in that coverage, because it got a lot of um, well-deserved praise, I think, for being serious about thinking of its role in a transition to a lower carbon future, is that Shell can adjust those goals each year to stay in line with society. So it doesn't want to be out front from where policy is. And if policymakers don't take more aggressive action to reduce carbon emissions, then Shell won't either. So um, it's worth keeping an eye on Shell's targets as they articulate them, because right now they haven't yet set anything too clear. And the other interesting thing about Shell was they linked executive pay to those targets, wasn't it? That was the yeah, but they haven't. Again, they thing. haven't. They haven't set what exactly that will be. So those details won't be forthcoming until 2020. So they said that they would tie executive pay to meeting those emission targets, but we don't yet know how substantial those bonuses will or won't be. Okay, we move on to question three. Which crash put an estimated 600,000 to 800,000 miners out of business? And there's a clue in the question. Miners. Is it the Bitcoin crash? It is the Bitcoin crash. Well done, Vijay. Yes, that's right. The lucrative business of Bitcoin mining has declined, which is probably good news if we're still on the green front for um, electricity use around the world, which is getting rather ridiculous, not just Bitcoin mining. You're quite right. The way that Bitcoin is mined, for example, a lot of it is in China, in uh, Xinjiang and other provinces, they use a lot of dirty coal to uh, to fire up the electricity. But that doesn't have to be. If you're doing this job in, in Iceland, let's say, where a lot of uh, data farms are, you, you could use renewable energy and suddenly you transform a Bitcoin or other cryptocurrency into the uber green digital platform of the future. Let's move on to round two, which is people in the news. Again, remember, there might be slightly cryptic these questions. Which executive at an Anglo-Dutch company found his position was no longer sustainable. I would imagine it's Paul Pullman, but I don't know. That's correct, because he was a champion of sustainable capitalism. What do you think of his record, Charlotte? Ten years as a CEO? 
Well, Unilever um, really led the way, certainly within the consumer products industry and perhaps even more broadly in trying to think about a different definition of what capitalism could look like, focusing on environmental sustainability, sustainability of the workforce, across a number of different metrics. So, you know, hats off, I think, to Paul Pullman for trying to be a leader in this area. Question two, which tech executive was empty chaired by an international parliamentary committee? Zuckerberg. Zuckerberg, that's correct, Charlotte, Zuckerberg. They put a little notice out for him when they invited Zuckerberg to appear and left a chair with his nameplate in front of it, but he didn't turn up to answer. So why was everybody gunning for Facebook this year? It must be noted in fairness that uh, Google's CEO, Sundar Pichai, also had an empty chair, uh, in this case in the U.S. Congress, when he didn't turn up for one of the tech clash hearings. So I think this technique is not as uh, uncommon as all that. If only there was some search engine where you could look for Google executives. Um, why do you think everybody had it in for Zuckerberg? I mean, why wouldn't they have it in for Zuckerberg this year? Um, yeah, it was a really remarkable year. I mean, I think that you saw Zuckerberg evolve a bit over the course of the year as he became more polished and realized that he really needed to take these questions more seriously than he had in the past. Sheryl Sandberg, of course, also has consistently been an incredibly articulate and well-liked leader of Facebook and and certainly a well-positioned person to come to the Hill and explain what Facebook's doing to politicians. I think that uh, that role is evolving in real time as we get more information from from various reports on her reaction to the Cambridge Analytical News and how she participated in trying to deflect some of the criticism and look into ways to manage Facebook through that crisis. So I think that her role is going to be different going forward. Well, there's also just been a lot more revealed this year about the inner functionings of Facebook and especially its executives, right? Not just investigative reports from the New York Times, but what we've learned about their role in the Cambridge Analytica scandal. It's starting to change his reputation from like the guy in the hoodie who's like a bit naive, doesn't realize the mess that his company has created to somebody who's actually much more, I don't know know if the word ruthless is right here, but at least calculating somebody who actually has to take responsibility for everything that the company's done. Like, I think his public reputation has shifted so dramatically. And that actually makes a big difference in terms of how the company's monitored, the way that policymakers look at it. So I agree with Charlotte that this actually, to me, is one of the two or three biggest stories of the year is the backlash against the tech companies. Okay, let's move on to question three. 420 proved to be the wrong number for which corporate leader? Oh, we all know this one. We should say it at the same time, I think. VJ's chomping at the bit, though. Go well, ahead. Well, it was uh, clearly Elon Musk, the toker-in-chief over at uh, Tesla, although he has recently claimed on television that he doesn't smoke marijuana, despite the appearances on a, a video podcast of having done so. The real trouble he got into was not really the the marijuana references, but his incompetence in uh, arranging the, in manufacturing, I mean, where the rubber hits the road, in this case, literally, the rubber from the tires of Tesla Model S vehicles were not hitting the road fast enough. He bet the entire future of the company, Tesla, that is, he had promised to ramp up production dramatically and to go mass market. That would have been really the validation of the entire Tesla thesis for electric vehicles. And he was not able to crack the code on how to manufacture these cars at volume. And it's a work in progress. They've made some more recent progress. But in the course of the year, it became clear that it was a problem that he couldn't solve easily. And in the meanwhile, all the rest of the world heard from him were 
moronic and irrelevant tweets about all manner of subjects, new products like flamethrowers that he launched on the side as a gag, and of course the the infamous podcast where he smoked pot. And the thing that got him into trouble, and maybe, uh, Carter, if you want to take over here, but was his tweet claiming he had the resources to take the company public. Yeah, that he had backing take for private. a take private, right? Where you, I think the famous uh, phrase, funding secured, right? The two words of the year, I guess, you know, from Elon Musk. Such a fascinating figure, right, in many ways. Somebody who really kind of like hard to assess the balance of like where you come down on how good he's been for innovation, for the economy, that kind of thing, on the one hand, and how kind of... I don't know, held back by his own worst impulses he's been in the meantime at the same time, uh, and all that sort of came to a head this year. My view on Elon Musk is that in a world of mediocre, self-serving corporate chiefs and crony boards in American capitalism, really Anglo-Saxon capitalism, he is a wonderful antidote. He is a truly ambitious, game-changing entrepreneur who's willing to put everything on the line time and again. He's shown enormous ambition and a willingness to take very high risks with his own capital at a time peers in Silicon Valley cash out, they become trillionaires. He is to be applauded, I think, in, in raising the game in terms of ambition. The problems have to do with some of his personal failings, right? He tweets at all hours of the day and night, anything that comes into his mind, and he makes some questionable decisions, which are a problem only because his company is public. If he were to take Tesla private genuinely and somehow manage to do it, he would have a lot more room to do all of these shenanigans. So the only problem I have with him is his conduct is unbecoming of the head of a public company. Right, we're going to move on to the odd one out round now. This is um, four people I'm going to mention, and I want you to name which one of them is the odd one out and why. So here we go with the first list. Jeff Bezos, Stephen Schwartzman, Mary Barra, and Matt Levitich. Well, Matt Levitich, because he's the one that I don't know who he is. <laughs> I'll give you a clue. He's the CEO of Harley-Davidson. Stephen Schwartzman. That's correct. Yeah. He gets along with Trump. Exactly. Right. All the rest of them have gotten into fights with Trump or been picked on upon. All the rest of them have been criticized by Trump, yep, yeah, in tweets where Schwartzman has gone out of his way to praise Trump. This year, that's correct. Okay, do you, any of you, you know how CEOs are supposed to deal in this world where the president attacks them? I'm trying to struggle to think of any previous era, perhaps Theodore Roosevelt and uh, U.S. Steel or something. But you know, not in the modern era has any company risks of coming in in the morning and finding the president has attacked them overnight. I sort of suspect that they should ignore it. I think the big worry at the very beginning of the Trump administration was that it would go beyond just the tweets, that it would go beyond just like the jawboning, that it would be something more like a Latin American populist dictator who would actually start trying to directly harm these companies. It doesn't look like that's happening. Maybe the closest example to that that I can think of is the president trying to direct the post office to charge Amazon more for deliveries. I think that, yeah, I think that Bezos's response was pretty interesting. So th this is not a new thing for Amazon. Trump has been criticizing them for years now. And I was curious with the announcement of Amazon's new headquarters, whether that would be sort of a political announcement, whether they'd go someplace, maybe in a swing state or in a Republican state, where they might try to talk about how they were, the company was going to transform that community and be part of an economic revival. Because, of course, Trump has criticized Amazon for gutting traditional retail and 
undermining the post office and basically taking advantage of the average American in some way. And Amazon sort of did what it does, which is make a big announcement that was an announcement that had to do with the appropriate place for their headquarters, not for any broader political goal, as far as I could tell, VJ, I don't know if you want to weigh in, but it was a very sort of pragmatic announcement that they made in choosing New York and Virginia. It didn't have to do with, they weren't going to Detroit, they weren't going to Ohio. So there was not really a clear political calculus, as far as I could see. Well, if we're discussing Amazon's so-called second headquarters, aside from the CEO question that you asked, Phil, I frankly thought it was a, a cynical ruse, an obscene one that you know, the world's richest man and arguably its most powerful company held a charade of a beauty contest for something that's called a second headquarters. First of all, there's no such thing. There's one power base. There's no such thing as a second headquarters. And in the end, they divided the second headquarters into two, thereby clearly making them what the mayor of Seattle called branch offices. So the whole thing was a false trail, but they got scores of American cities to spend uncounted hours and money on consultants to get together the data, the proposals, all held secret under non-disclosure agreements, data that is commercially invaluable to Amazon for future decisions on logistics and sales and so on that they've now acquired. And in the end, they went to two extremely rich cities, the Washington, D.C. area in Virginia and New York City in Long Island City, where Jeff Bezos has a house just within six miles of each of these locations and where there's talent and there's really no argument that this is a, an area that Amazon is helping lift up in some way. So I find the whole exercise to be obscene and frankly, a little bit cynical. And of course, this is not to mention the billions in taxpayer subsidies that they will end up getting. I suppose the theme for some of the answers here then has been this corporate power this year. You've got, you know, Facebook and Google, as you say, not turning up to talk to parliaments that want to talk to them. You've got the ability of Amazon to have local authorities dancing on a string. You've got Musk's of thumbing his nose at the SEC. And the interesting thing is populism has grown up in the last few years, which you'd think was all about trying shackling the corporations. But there's very little sign of the power of these big companies being reined in, is there? And certainly Trump doesn't really want to do it. No, it's quite the opposite. Uh, we've seen in the last few years hyper-consolidation amongst uh, companies, and not just in tech, which we focused a little bit on today, but in, in sector after sector after sector, we've seen dramatic consolidation, the disappearance of the middle, but also of small and medium-sized businesses. Uh, new firm formation is at uh, quite low levels compared to American historical standards. Some of this has to do with structural changes in the economy, technological changes, e-commerce. Uh, but some of it also has to do, I would argue, and we've argued on our pages, to do with lax application of antitrust policies and enforcement, for example. And so I think um, we are living in an age of concentrated business and this is leading to predictable outcomes in terms of consumer welfare, I would argue. If you go beyond measuring just the fact that Google searches are free, uh, what is the true cost of the data companies, the online companies, uh, giving us seemingly free services but monetizing our vapor trail of, of uh, data, privacy, even ultimately election results and so on being manipulated. So we're paying our costs in indirect ways and our awareness as citizens and consumers and our uh, governments, our public square hasn't caught up with the nature of evolution of industry. We're going to move on to that award ceremony. So for each of you, who would you like to nominate for an award in any category you want to name and why? Let's start with Cardiff. 
Okay, I brought a whole bunch of these. <laughs> uh, the first award is the Stop Trying to Do the Right Thing, You Lack the Practice Award. This was uh, given to Pepsi for uh, having contemplated introducing these new low-crunch, quote-unquote, lady Doritos earlier this year. This happened less than a year after Pepsi also came out with that super problematic commercial starring Kendall Jenner where she kind of was walking through a crowd with a Pepsi and then hands the police officer the Pepsi and everybody thought that it was essentially a trivialization of Black Lives Matter and other movements, right? So Pepsi's sort of knocking it out of the park when it comes to just like big, awkward fumble, like, you know you know what I mean? Like stumbles, I guess is the right word for it. Um, they ended up not introducing a line of quote unquote lady Doritos. Uh, and in the end, they ended up tweeting out that they already have them. They're called Doritos, which is probably what they're you know, they should have arrived at when that was first brought up. But anyways, uh, I thought that was funny. Charlotte, have you got someone to nominate? I'm going to nominate a thing. The most nausea-inducing commodity would be oil. We haven't talked at all about the oil price, but it's been just a hugely bumpy few months for oil. We had at the end of the summer, beginning of the fall, people warning of $100 barrel oil. There were Iran sanctions looming at the beginning of November. Saudi Arabia and Russia were trying to comply with the Trump administration's plea to raise production and keep the oil price down. And then you saw the Trump administration essentially lift the sanctions for the countries that account for the vast majority of Iranian oil. There was also huge production coming out of American shale, and the oil price crashed. And you've seen it go up and down. There was an OPEC meeting at the beginning of December where they agreed to cut production. But it's been um, quite a dizzying sequence of events, and I think is a reminder of what the oil markets might look like going forward in this new era with American shale, where you have the traditional big producers that used to try to control volatility, increasingly hampered in their ability to do so, both by American shale and also by volatile countries, including not just Venezuela, Libya, and Iraq, but the policies coming out of the Trump administration. Thank you. And Vijay? So I'm going to give the No Good Deed Goes Unpunished Award to John Flannery the short-lived CEO at GE. He came in after a very long-serving CEO and chairman, Jeff Immelt, for years, let the company drift. Some people called it innovation theater, where they would show off lots of fancy things, but nothing would ever create anything valuable. Certainly things went wrong, key parts of the company under his watch. The new man came in, John Flannery, with a plan to clean house. And most incredibly, rather than keep on an unwieldy and and cronyish board, one of his first reforms was to reduce the size of the board, phase out people with irrelevant backgrounds, and put in people with relevant experience and give them teeth, including an activist investor. And in less than 14 months, without having had a chance to make some of the cuts and changes that he had promised to do, one of the people he had put on the board, organized a boardroom coup, ousted him and is now the new chairman of GE in his place. So the very reforms that he put in place to give uh, a meaningful check and balance on CEO power led to his ouster. And so I, I actually tip my hat, though he was not given the chance to prove that he could conduct a thorough reform of GE. He showed us a little bit of what good governance looks like. Well, that's very neat because we started with Larry Culp, the new uh, CEO of GE, and we've ended with the former CEO. So thank you very much, everybody. And I declare that the result is a tie. You all did brilliantly. <laughs> we all did abysmally well. Thank you. Cardiff, Charlotte and Vijay. 
And thank you, the listeners, for listening to this special edition of Money Talks. I'm Philip Coggan. In London and New York, this is The Economist. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.